Turn with me to 1 Kings real quick. I've got notes. Let me touch on being led by fleeces there. I don't want to spend the whole service there, but if we need to, we can. 1 Kings chapter 19. I grew up denominational, as you probably know if you've been here any length of time. And so being a denominational Christian, we weren't taught a whole lot about the Holy Spirit. Now that denomination has actually really grown a lot in the last 30 years and the clean ones, the good ones. And I'm, I'm, I'm excited to see what God's doing among their ranks. I mean, I was raised Southern Baptist, in no sense beating around the bush with it. I was raised Southern Baptist, and I don't, I don't remember hearing anything about the Holy Spirit growing up. It doesn't mean we weren't taught. I just don't remember. There's a lot of stuff to learn as a child. I remember the doxology. Praise God, there's Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. So there we had a little bit of teaching. and In the doxology, we called them the Holy Ghost, but otherwise I don't remember much teaching on them. I came over to faith circles and we began to learn about the Holy Spirit and being led by the Holy Spirit. And whereas the Baptists taught wisdom and sound decision making, the faith circles taught being led by the Holy Spirit. And it was never meant to encourage us to throw out wisdom and sound doctrine. But somehow in all that great teaching where Brother Hagen, who was foundational father or father patriarchal influence of this ministry. Brother Hagin was raised Southern Baptist. He never meant for anybody to throw out wisdom, work ethic, sound doctrine. He just taught to be led by the Holy Spirit almost to improve your accuracy, which is really what it's all about. He was fond of saying, he said, I am as led just as much by what God doesn't say as by what he does say which what he meant was, I have my notes. I'll just apply it to preaching. I have my notes, and I'm going to preach them if the Lord doesn't say otherwise, because that's being led by the Holy Spirit. Now, in an endeavor to look mature and to look up to who maybe we thought were the heroes of the faith, and they truly were, we tried to, by we I mean the general body of Christ, spirit-filled folks, we tried to emulate that, and we somehow miss took what Brother Hagen and Brother Sumrall and some of the other greats, Pastor John Osteen and T.L. Osborne, what these guys were teaching, we felt like, or maybe mistook, that thought they were led by the Holy Spirit in everything, which pair of shoes to put on and which socks to match with it. And that's, that's, that's a crazy train over here. I don't know any spirit-filled Christian. I don't mean this to disparage any man of God in my life, but the greatest man of God I've ever known was Pastor Aquoquo. He walked with the tangible presence of God. All my fathers have, but his made me tremble, just a greater degree. But he was a man who came to Christ right after the Biafran Civil War in Nigeria. And there's just something different when you come to Christ in a war zone and you're bush people killing each other. It's different. He wasn't led by the Holy Spirit trying to figure out what shoes to wear, what socks to wear, what to cook for dinner that night. That's goofy. But now on the other end of the spectrum are the denominational folks who, to them, the Holy Spirit's the enigmatic third person of a theoretical construct called the Trinity. So I don't even know what that makes him to them. Uh, maybe he just stays at the last line of the doxology. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Almost sounds like the Westminster chime. Hmm. Old clock tower chime. 
So one ditch is, I don't know who the Holy Spirit is. Let me just eke it out with wisdom, work ethic, and good decision-making. The other ditch is, ooh, I'm not doing anything to the Holy Spirit leads me. That's weird, and you'll get a demon. And it's not mature. It might be a little spiritual, but it's a goofy spiritual. And so I've had to say a lot over the years, I am not as led by the Holy Spirit as you probably think I am. At the same time, I just keep landing up on top like a cat you throw off the building. It's always going to land on its feet. So that's got to account for something. Uh, I know what I need to know when I need to know it, not before. And uh, if he's not speaking, we just march using common sense and the Word. And the Word doesn't make you goofy, and neither will the real Holy Spirit. Now, other spirits will. And this being a religious region... These religious devils know how to pass themselves off as charismatic Pentecostalism. And that's why we just, we purposely lean uh, probably against some of the gifts of the Spirit more than I would if I was pastoring someplace else because Upper Cumberland Charismatica is crazy. It's unbalanced, it's unhealthy, and it's borderline fruitless. Squeezes out an occasional pickle looking cucumber and a couple stink berries that look like cranberries and maybe a little cherry tomato that brags itself of Roma tomato. And that's about all Upper Cumberland Charismatica can do as far as I can tell. So now coming back down the middle, being led by the Holy Spirit. When you don't know the Holy Spirit, you fall into another line of superstition called open doors and closed doors. And that is superstitious. And in doing so, you don't realize it, but you're tapping into the demon realm because the demons can move doors. The demons can resist you. The demons can make opportunities unfold before you. The demons can set up win-win situations for you. And as you approach them, if you were led by the Holy Spirit, on the inside, the peace of God would dry up so fast you'd know, ooh, I do not need to go there. You study the book of Acts, you see uh, about the middle of Acts, Paul is moving from the coast of the Mediterranean up through Asia Minor or the region of Lydda. And the whole area is an open door of opportunity. And he went to go to the north and the Lord, the Holy Ghost forbid him. No open door or closed door. Totally open. But the Holy Ghost forbid him. So then he wants to go over here and the Holy Ghost restrained him. So then he wants to go over here and the Holy Ghost forbid that. So then he's confused going, well, Lord, I can't go anywhere. And then he has a dream. And a person from Macedonia crying out in the dream, come over here and help us. And they call that the Macedonian call. So he bypasses everything that was easily accessible to cross over into Galatia, which was even further away. He bypasses all this easy, low-hanging fruit to go someplace that the Holy Spirit said go, not the open door. Because where he had to go was much more inconvenient. So what happens is a lot of Christians, because they don't know the Holy Spirit, and that's okay, you see that in Acts 19, Paul traveling to Ephesus, finding certain disciples. He said, have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said, who? <laughs> They're born again. They don't even know who the Holy Spirit is. Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? They said, we don't even know there's the Holy Ghost. I'm sure that sounded really foreign to those guys. Holy Ghost? There's a ghost that's holy? And we're supposed to have them? See, they weren't even Trinitarian theorists. They, they, they didn't have any kind of theory. They just knew they loved God and Jesus died for them and they believed on him. And it shows you, you don't have to believe in the Holy Spirit to be born again. But we want to fill in those doctrinal gaps. So if you don't know the Holy Spirit, then you're left kind of scratching around in the dark. 
And really the whole teaching on being led by the Holy Spirit that the Word of Faith movement brought to us, which was birthed out of Pentecostalism at the Azusa Street Revival, which gave way to the Pentecostal denominations, Church of God, Church of God in Christ, Assemblies of God, then the Jesus movement, then the Charismatic movement, and the Word of Faith. All that being led by the Spirit teaching was given to us to improve our accuracy so that when we didn't know what to do and wisdom ran out, we could be led by the Holy Spirit. Or if everything seemed good and we had three awesome options, we would know by the peace of God, go with option B because A and C are not the will of God. But what we ended up doing, and if you don't know the Holy Spirit's leading, you have no choice but to walk by sight. Because if you can't walk by faith or the Spirit, you're, you're just going to, by superstitious, carnal nature, walk by sight. Sometimes the sight looks like the, the, the resistance. If something's resisting you, why would you push further when there's something easier over here? Sometimes walking by resistance is just as carnal as walking by an open door. Because surely the Lord wouldn't ask me to do something hard. Surely he wouldn't ask me to do something where there's much opposition. Like Paul said, there's open unto me a great window of opportunity, but with it comes much opposition. So now you have two different sights do I go by the open door, but when I walk through it, there's great opposition? So which is the site I'm walking by, the open door or the opposition behind the open door? I'm confused. Sounds like the hokey pokey. You put one foot in, you take one foot out, you put one foot in, and you shake it all about. You have the Baptist doctrine, and you turn yourself about. That's what it's all about. Shout. The Holy Spirit, if you're sensitive to him, say, march through that door anyway. I'll give you victory over all those naysaying voices. So when we walk by sight or we fleece God or we say, Lord, if you want me to do this, make this happen, that is actually conjuring spirits to work. If you've ever dabbled in the occult, and some of you have, you've shared those stories with me, you know how to move the demon realm. It goes on in our city. There are witches that practice in our city. There are sorcerers. Black Mountain in Crossville used to be a hotbed for it. You, I've been told that you could go up there and find decapitated animals where the Satanists would offer sacrifices to demons. Um, I've had experiences with witches. They are real, and they move the demon realm to affect things. Not to be spooky with you, it's just reality. We're pretty intellectual here, so we don't believe in a lot of it, but it's still true. Demons can open doors, they can close doors. Demons can stir up bosses to make them hostile against you, or demons can make somebody favor you to take you a place you don't need to go. We don't walk by anything we can see, taste, or touch. We walk by faith, and we walk by the peace of God, and we walk by the inward witness, and we walk by the wisdom of God. We walk by the counsel around us who says, you know what, I just I don't feel good about this. We don't want to be the fool from Proverbs who can be more wise in their own eyes than seven men that can render a reason. And that's why wisdom says as you begin to date, court, and fall in love, surround yourself with the presbytery like we have here and ask them, do you feel good about me pursuing this girl or do you feel good about this boy pursuing me? And, and if the elders feel good about it, well, man, that's a good green light to proceed until there's another caution light and a caution flag. But there really is something to be said about Christians who are still walking by sight fleecing God. And you've got to understand, there are lying signs and wonders. Thessalonians warns us against it. The, the devil can make you promoted, and he'll promote you right out of the will of God. 
He'll, he'll make job opportunities available to you to just take you away and you'll never see the will of God again and everything will just fall apart. And many of you have experienced that. You've shared that with me. That you had promotion and you took it because isn't God in promotion? Yeah. And then you landed wherever the promotion was and you were so miserable you'd have done anything to get back home. This becomes an even greater nuance when you have uh, missionary work to do or ministry work to do and the Lord forbids you to do some of it. Because that's hard to defend or shoot down with the Word of God because all ministry is based in the Word. So why wouldn't the Lord let me be at that youth conference? Why wouldn't the Lord let me preach at that helps conference? Why wouldn't the Lord let me go to that country on missions? It's none of my business. He just said, don't do it. You never throw out this fleece. Well, Lord, if you want me to do it, bring me the money. No, he told you to do it. Believe the money in. Well, Lord, if you want me to do this, cause this door to open. You forget demons open doors. How do you think people ruin their lives so easily? How many of our great singers have we seen leave Christianity to go sing for the world? And the devil promoted them. Katy Perry was raised in a Pentecostal church. Her parents used to be submitted to my pastor. Dr. Barclays told us numerous times, I used to bounce Katy Perry on my knee like I bounced your kids on my knee. And how do you go from being a spirit-filled preacher's daughter to being one of the greatest blights in pop culture? Because devils open doors. Amen. Beyonce the same way, raised Baptist, raised in the house of God. Now she willingly talks about the demons she channels when she dances. It's funny, though, this past two weeks, her new album has been canceled because she uses words like spaz. And apparently that is an ableist term and it hurts the mentally ill. I'm sorry. I tell my kids quit being a spaz all the time. What's that, daddy? That's how you're acting right now. Quit being a spaz. It's funny, you can have a demon and still get canceled. You can be the most wealthy black singer in a generation and still get canceled because you're not woke enough. You use the term spaz. I think it's a fun term. Just don't want my kids to be it. I don't, when I say spaz, I don't think of mentally ill kids or autistic kids. I think of the, how some of our kids act. Hopped up on sugar watching too much Star Wars. <laughs> Man, I can fix that spaz. I don't even need a pill. Go stand by the paddle. I'm going to despise you. <laughs> Amen. So 1 Kings, let's look at this here. Here's this great prophet running from God. He wants direction. The last word he heard was, go deal with Jezebel. And he wants another word because he doesn't like that word. The word of the Lord he heard last on Mount Carmel was, go get the 400 prophets, 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah that sit at Jezebel's table. So Ahab brings his 450 prophets of Baal, but absent at the Mount Carmel, Carmel showdown are Jezebel and her 400 prophets because she's not going to obey her husband and she's certainly not going to obey Elijah. So when you're supposed to have 850 prophets at this showdown and only 450 show up and you're supposed to deal with this perversion and it isn't dealt with, the revival's not over. And so the man of God has to go pursue the sin because that's what real men of God do. They don't stop till the head is fully cut off from all the sin. You men, you don't get to give yourself sleep or slumber till whatever God's assigned you to do is fully dealt with because it will rear its head and cause problems. So the hand of God comes upon Elijah, 
The last word he has is deal with the prophets of Asherah. That's the feminine deity counterpart to the masculine Baal counterpart. So the hand of God comes upon Elijah, takes him 30 miles. He outruns the horse and chariot, delivers them to the doors of Jezreel. And he realizes, holy Toledo or holy Bethel. I mean, here I am. <laughs> and and uh, Jezebel's behind these walls, as are her prophets, and she's the expert prophet killer. What am I going to do? And he freaks out, and he runs away looking for a better word. So where does he go? He goes down to Mount Carmel, excuse me, Mount Horeb, Mount Sinai, where there was once a revival, but there hasn't been one in a long time. So let's look at verse 8, 1 Kings 19.8. And he came there to Horeb, the mountain of God, unto a cave, and he lodged there. Now, I like to point out, and maybe you've written in the Bible because I've taught this before, the word lodge there is a double word in the Hebrew. It also means to grumble, to bellyache. Have you ever been to that place where God's given you a direction and you say, Lord, is there any other way? The Lord Jesus has certainly been there, so we're not condemning anybody because his most famous prayer is, Lord, if there be any other way. But I don't think he was grumbling because he's the Lord. He's totally in submission. I think this is the prophet truly grumbling, saying, Bleh, I don't want to do it. I want another word. Bleh. Uh, you have to be careful claiming to be spirit-filled and spirit-led because God will require you to be more accurate and more precise in your obedience. So that's one of the double-edged swords of being in spirit-filled circles. We believe in the leading of the Holy Spirit. We don't believe God went silent in 70 A.D. when he judged the Jews. Why would he go silent to the church when he judged the Jews for their rebellion? That makes no sense to me. We believe he still talks. But if he talks, you're going to get much more accurate, detailed assignments. But that just means you've got to do them. Please don't go say you hear from God unless you bear fruit. Because if you hear from God, you're going to be fruitful. Or he's going to stop talking to you one. All right. So he lodged there, and we could say he grumbled there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said unto him. So he's all excited. Oh, the Lord's speaking to me. Oh, I'm going to get a new assignment. And the Lord says, what are you doing here, Elijah? That's probably not what he wanted to hear. We have taught you before when the Lord asks you a question, you are in trouble. Because the Lord doesn't ask the question for your benefit. He asks, excuse me, his benefit. He asks the question for your benefit. God knows exactly why he's there, but he's trying to get Elijah to be honest with himself. Why are you here? Now, I, I will go ahead and present to you the fact that Elijah's looking for God on a mountain that God no longer moves on. God was moving on a mountain 40 days prior called Mount Carmel, three days journey to the north in a town called Samaria. God hasn't moved on this mountain in hundreds of years, not since the Ten Commandments. God doesn't move here anymore, but he's going back in time trying to live the good old days. This might be good for us old-timers and charismatics. This isn't the 90s. Brother Hagin's been dead 20 years. Rhema's all but a thing of the past. Now faith is. And if you're trying to, trying to catch lightning in a bottle... You might as well be wearing pants from the 80s, those zipper pants, those parachute pants, wisping when you walk, because that's how out of date you are. And I've been in meetings that we're still trying to rekindle a camp meeting from the late 70s. It's weird. It's almost incestuous. It's so funky. It's 
It's all Elijah's doing here because it was easier back then because it was revival. And in revival, it's easy to serve God. The real question is, can you serve God when he hasn't moved in a long time? Abraham truly is the father of our faith because God didn't move hardly any in 25 years, and he still stayed faithful. He says, what are you doing here? And if he would have been honest, he'd have said, well, I'm running from you trying to find you. <laughs> Haven't we all been there? Lord, I'm running from you because I don't want to obey you, but please tell me what to do. And he's always going to tell you the last thing he told you to do, if you'd be honest about it. And he said, I've been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. For the children of Israel forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and slain your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. That's not an answer, that's an excuse. Don't you know how hard it is? Don't you know how hard my situation is? It's not an answer. It's an excuse. He got one excuse. We're going to count how many he gets before the Lord is done. Talking about being led by the Holy Spirit versus being led by signs and wonders and open doors and closed doors. The Lord said, go forth, stand upon the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. And a great strong wind rent the mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. Now let's stop and analyze this. I feel like I taught this two or three years ago. The Lord speaks to Elijah. We have every reason to believe this is the still small voice. This is the inward witness. He speaks, and as soon as he speaks, there is a supernatural, supernatural, didn't say God, a supernatural, tangible manifestation. God speaks, and then there's a wind. A great, strong wind. So strong, it broke mountains and break in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But it wasn't God. Lying signs and wonders. Now, the Old Testament doesn't deal with demons quite to the degree the New Testament does. But if this isn't God, who is it? Demon power. Don't you know those demons that he certainly stirred up when he killed 450 of their prophets and had the people of Israel cut their heads off down at the brook Cherith? Don't you know the demons are watching this whole scenario? Don't you know the demons are trying to harass this prophet, trying to get him to commit suicide? They've got him depressed. Don't you know they're present here too? Now, the problem is he's seeking God. Demons are present, but the man of God already knows what to do. He just doesn't want to do it. And so what you see is both God getting quieter and the demons getting louder. And this is not a good place to be. So let me present to you, when you become disobedient to God, the voice of God's going to get quieter and quieter. And the voice of your enemy that's watching your disobedience is going to get louder and louder and begin to move things in your life. And if you're not careful, you're going to fall prey to it because there have been times where God was in the great strong wind. He was in the wind on Pentecost, a mighty rushing wind. With the blast of his nostrils, he parted the Red Sea. In a few pages, he's, Elijah's going to go up in a whirlwind. There are times God moves in a mighty wind that can rent mountains. But the Bible says specifically, but the Lord was not in the wind. So it has to be demons. 
And after the wind, an earthquake. Well, there are times when God is in the earthquake. When Jesus died, there was an earthquake and it rent the rock in two. You have earthquakes that bring judgment. Many times earthquakes are God, but the Lord was not in this earthquake. So who's in it? Demons. So think about this. The Lord asks the question. Now, number one, Elijah is officially fully-fledged backslidden. He feels sorry for himself. He wants to die. If you follow his trajectory, he heads from Jezreel, which is in the north of Samaria, in the old city or the old uh, nation of Israel. Israel was divided, divided kingdom at this time. He crosses into Judah. He comes down to Beersheba, which is the last city, and he leaves his servant there, then goes three days' journey into the wilderness. He's going down, down, down. Now he's another journey's way all into Arabia, Midian, way down. He just keeps going down further and further out of the will of God. He's not a prophet to Judah. He's a prophet to Israel. He's passed through Judah, not his territory. He's out of bounds. Not only that, he's not a prophet to, to Midian or Arabia. He's so far out of bounds. He is royally backslid asking God to die. And when God speaks to him, says, what are you doing here? All he does is manifest self-righteousness, self-justification. And his excuse sounds like ours today. You don't understand. So hard, Lord. You don't know how hard it is, God. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know the tears. Now, that's really a dumb thing to say to a God we claim to believe in and we believe knows everything. But you can become so delusional, the same excuses you blow at one another, you blow in God's face. So the Lord asks him a question. The prophet is not honest, so the Lord gives him a command. When you can't be honest with God, we might look for the commandment. Get out of this cave, go forth, because remember, he's in the cave. He makes an excuse. He, okay, he's, he's so far south. He's up on a mountain. He's in a hole. And if you'd ask him, do you want to serve God? I'm all that's left. I'm a mighty man of God. Are you sure? Because it feels like to me you're 40 days backslidden on angel food. Been making excuses for the last... 60 days, abandoning everything God's told you to do. You got a revival on hold, two months, dry, uh, or two days travel to the north or whatever. You still think you're a mighty man of God. There's no honesty coming out of this man yet. The Lord speaks to him into the, in the cave, go forth. That is, get out of this cave, which is in the side of the mountain. Go stand upon the mountain before the Lord. Wind, no God in it. Earthquake, no God in it. After the earthquake, a fire. Well, here's our third witness. Has God been in fire before? Absolutely. Holy Ghost fire. Fire coming down from above, consuming his enemies. Elijah was really good at calling down fire. Elijah could manifest fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. So who's in it? Demons. 
And after the fire, a still small voice. So think about this, where we're at so far. Elijah's backslidden. He's wanting to die. He feels sorry for himself. But when the Lord asks him an honest question, his answer is anything but honest. It's full of self-righteousness. And when the Lord gives him a command, he doesn't obey. And in his disobedience, it causes supernatural things to happen. Supernatural things that look divine. That should scare us as spirit-filled folks accustomed to the supernatural. That our disobedience to God might give the devil permission to do supernatural things that we think are divine. Wind and earthquakes and fire that have all been God in times past, just not this time. We're not impressed with supernatural. We're not impressed with the miraculous. We're not impressed with things that would seem to be Holy Ghost coincidences. I'm not impressed with any of it. I want long-term fruit. You can have a lot of miracles in your life and still go to hell. Mark 7, Matthew 7 confirms that many shall say, have we not done many miracles in your name? And the Lord say, depart from me. I never knew you. So after, I jokingly call it earth, wind, and fire. <laughs> after these three tremendous, tangible manifestations, fire had just come down on the Mount Carmel. But God's not in this fire. There had been whirlwinds. God wasn't in this one. Earthquakes. God's not in this one. Then there's the still small voice, and that's how we're led. Because we're not led by the supernatural. We're not led by the spectacular. We're led by the still small voice. And it was so when Elijah heard it that he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out. Why didn't he go out sooner? How come he didn't obey when the Lord said, go stand? Why does, why does there have to be a third voice now? The voice that questions, the voice that commands, and now this still small voice. That finally sparks it. We don't know what that voice says necessarily. But when he hears it, he wraps his face in his mantle, and he went out and stood in the entering of the cave. Where did God tell him to stand? Where? On the top. Is he obedient yet? Your partial obedience is still sin. You're playing games with God, peeing in his face, thinking you've done God a favor because you went and stood halfway to where he told you to stand. This was a man God answered his cry just a few weeks prior in the greatest showdown Israel had ever seen since Pharaoh. And now this man is a has-been because of his self-righteousness, his self-justification, and his self-pity. You don't know how hard. You don't know how it pulls. They, they're all against me. No, dude, you just had revival. They're all for you. They're the ones that killed the prophets. You just said, go kill them. They said, yes, sir. You just called down fire. They said, God, he is Lord. You just said, what are you talking about? You're so delusional, you little weasel prophet. But we get that way too. Whatever that still small voice is, we don't know what it said, but it finally sparked him to halfway obedience. 
Because we're not walking by sight. We're not walking by open doors, closed doors. God will command you to do some of the hardest things ever. And if you don't pass those tests, that's as far as you come. This gospel life is not paved with butter. It's not a luge where you just slick on down it. This thing is a, a, a hump, a hike up Mount Zion. And it's not easy. It's not for the faint of heart. And all those that live godly shall suffer persecution. And some will walk with you and some will walk away from you and some will walk against you. But you still go on with Jesus. And the more sacrifices you make, the easier it gets. The more momentum you, you gain and the more you say, I would never deny the Lord. Why would I fail him now? So he halfway obeys. He stood in the entering of the cave. Maybe we, we should draw attention. I ra- underlined it in my Bible. He wrapped his face in his mantle. One might argue, well, because he's going out of darkness into light. It's too bright for his face, but I've been in a lot of caves. You don't have trouble adjusting your eyes walking towards the mouth of a cave because it gets brighter and brighter, slower and slower. You don't ever have to worry about that. You don't even know when your light quits being of use. So this has nothing to do with his retinas adjusting. To me, I look at this and I think it's a testimony of shame because he knows he has failed God and he has no intention of obeying. I think it's a, a demonstration of the shame from whatever that voice said to him. And behold, there came a voice unto him. Here's the fourth voice, the third one, the still small one. We don't know what it said. Behold, a voice came to him and said, What doest thou here, Elijah? Very first question. I don't believe this one refers to what are you doing on Mount Zion. I think this one's asking, Why are you not on top? Because my last command, which was five minutes ago, was get on top. And you still haven't obeyed me. How many times does God have to ask us to do something? Most of us are parents in here. Do you like telling your kids to do the same thing five times? When they're little, you get it. I get it. Sometimes I send Bud Bud for something. If he doesn't come back with it, I'm not shocked. Daddy, can I help you? Yes, son. Could you go get this for me or tell mommy? Sure. 30 minutes later, well... He got distracted in 20 steps, but he's four. Sure. When you're 44, that's not acceptable. And yet I think God speaks to us sometimes over the same thing over and over and over again. And we act like a four-year-old. So he asked the first question because he didn't get an answer the first time. He got an excuse. But we know what kind of answer he's going to get. Same one. What are you doing here, Elijah? Not Horeb. What are you doing in the mouth of the cave? Because I just told you, get on top. My question is, what, what could have transpired had he done the additional legwork to get on top? How could the rest of this chapter have turned out? What would have the conversation looked like? What could have his destiny looked like? We don't know. Because from the moment he fled Jezreel, his whole ministry is in declension and he's on his way to being replaced. And he never recoups it. He never recovers it. He's done. From this point, everything is fading out. 
And God is so merciful having these divine appearances, these divine conversations, and all this man can do is lie to God, which is all an excuse is. What are you doing here? He could have said, he could have just said, Lord, I'm scared. Just be honest. Lord, I'm scared. Lord, I, I don't know what I'm doing. A couple days ago, I wanted you to kill me. Lord, I'm scared. It didn't go like I thought it would on Carmel. And then you left me at Jezreel's gate. And I don't like Jezebel. She makes me nervous. And Lord, I don't know what I'm doing. Help. One of the things you find in the life of Elijah, apparently he has a reputation for going up in whirlwinds and landing somewhere else. When you go back to chapter 15 or so, the very first thing we see about Elijah in the whole Bible is he has the reputation of disappearing and appearing someplace else. You remember? Are you looking at me like, really? All right, come back. Hold your place there. I'm going to stretch your mind here, I think. 1 Kings 17. What's that? Thank you. 18. It's 1 Kings 18. So he, after the, the end of the three and a half years, he goes and reveals himself to Obadiah, Ahab's steward. And he says, Obadiah, go call for your master to come. And he says in verse 11, Now thou sayest, Go tell thy Lord, behold, Elijah's here. And Obadiah says, And it shall come to pass as soon as I am gone from thee that the Spirit of the Lord shall carry thee wherever I know not. So when I come and tell Ahab, and he cannot find thee, he shall slay me. But I am your servant. Uh, I, thy servant, fear the Lord from my youth. Was it not told, my Lord, what I did when Jezebel slew the prophets of the Lord, how I hid a hundred men of the Lord's prophets by fifty in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And now thou sayest, Go tell thy Lord, behold, Elijah is here, and he shall slay me. And Elijah said, As the Lord liveth, Lord of hosts liveth, before whom I stand, I will surely show myself to him today. <laughs> and he didn't say, Whoa, 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 what's this nonsensical business about me just disappearing? Our first introduction to Elijah is that he just is kind of known for disappearing and reappearing someplace else. We'll see that again here in a minute. If that's your reputation, if, why couldn't you just be honest to God and maybe he would transport you from Horeb back to where you're supposed to be? Yeah. He is the God that redeems the time. He's a God that can translate you out of your mess to where you're supposed to be. He's a God that can make up for things. He can, he's a God that can restore that which the canker worm has eaten, but it requires obedience. I mean, it should, it should strike us as fascinating. Obadiah, his knowledge of Elijah is this is the prophet that disappears and shows up somewhere else. And Elijah does not deny the reputation. So we're back here to Mount Horeb. What are you doing here, Elijah? Elijah could have been honest, but no. I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. What does that have to do with this question? That's you resting on the 90s revival where you used to be hungry and obedient. That's you resting on when you used to be passionate for God and your best days should not be behind you. This ought to be the most fervent, most hungry, most solid you've ever been. We all wobble. We all have little lulls. But it should be like the normal stock market, not this new stuff for the last 10 years. But lulls, but we're climbing. I get it. We all have kind of, that was a bad week. Or, that was kind of a rough month. Or 
Uh, Our marriage was under attack for six weeks. I get that. But your best and most fervent days for Christ shouldn't have been when you first got saved or in the revival. You ought to have testimonies still. If every time you share your faith, you're talking about something from the 80s or 90s or early 2000s, you've not walked with God. Your life should be ever increasing because the day of the righteous grows brighter and brighter as to a perfect day. I've been very jealous. Not are, have been. He's already confessing he's a has been. Been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts because the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant. We've already covered this, Elijah, and we already discerned that, yeah, they were, but they've repented. Why don't you repent? How come you have everybody's answer but your own? They've forsaken the covenant, thrown down thy altars. No, no, Elijah, they just helped you build a new one. And they, they got water, a lot of it, in time of drought and hauled it up that mountain and wasted it as an offering to God. They helped you do that. You didn't do that. So how can you say they've torn down the altars when they just redeemed themselves by building an even better altar for God? Slain thy prophets with a sword. Yes, but they just slayed Baal's prophets with the sword. Everything you're accusing them of, they've reversed and atoned for. Why can't you see this, Elijah? Because of self-justification. Always right, always right, always right. You don't understand why I can't be obedient. You don't get it. I, even I, only am left. That's not what Obadiah said. Obadiah said, did they not tell you that I fed a hundred? Did they not tell you, O prophet, that I took a hundred of the Lord's prophets and hid them in a cave and fed them with bread and water? And they seek my life to take it away. Nobody's coming after you. You have one little horrible woman who won't even come out of her castle to make some hollow threat. She wouldn't even show up to see you face to face on the mountain when you invited her. The Lord said unto him, he doesn't even answer the ignorance. Here's a demotion, and the Lord doesn't even do it harshly. Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. That's all the way on the north side of Israel. When you come, anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, shalt thou anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abimelech, shalt thou anoint to be prophet in thy room. And if you study this, he doesn't do any of this. There's no evidence he ever anointed Elisha with oil. He threw his mantle on him, but there's no record that he ever anointed him. Elisha goes in and sends one of his servants to do Jehu, but the third guy is never talked about. Shall come to pass that him that escaped the sword of Hazael shall Jehu slay, and him that escapeth from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha slay. Yet I have left me seven thousand in Israel, all the knees which have not bowed unto Baal, and every mouth which has not kissed him. So here's a discouraging thing. He's looking for signs and wonders. The still small voice is grinding him to powder. We started off talking about being led by sight. We don't walk by what's easy or what's hard because what he had to do was hard and he refused to do it. And his excuse is that it's too hard. It's too hard. So he goes and asks the Lord for a word and the word is the same thing, but he doesn't want to do it. He keeps making excuses. And my point, I guess, tonight is I'm shifting this message away from open doors and closed doors to being led by the Holy Spirit. The Lord wants what he wants and you'd be wise to give it to him ASAP no matter how difficult it is. Just jump in and do the hard thing 
and stay blessed. We all know, because we know the story, this is Elijah's demotion. Go anoint Elisha to be your replacement. Go. Now, you know the story because you come over here and to 2 Kings. I'm going to find a scripture real quick. One second. Second Kings is where he is taken up. And we know that uh, everybody can perceive that this is the day that Elijah, Second Kings chapter 2. Um, this, is the way, this is the day that the Lord will take away thy master from thy head today. So three times the sons of the prophets tell Elisha that. He says, yes, I know it. Hold your peace. They don't say that he's going to take your master to heaven. He just says he's going to remove him as your leader. Take him away from your head. The Hebrew word's rosh. It just means headship, leadership, authority. Don't you know this is the day Elijah will no longer be your boss. He'll no longer be your pastor. He'll no longer be over you. And he knows it in every school of the prophets as he travels between three cities he goes from Gilgal to Jericho, and then from Jericho on down to the Jordan. Uh, they all can confirm it. And so we know the story, verse 9, It came to pass when they were gone over that Elijah said unto Elisha, Ask what I shall do for thee before I be taken away from thee. Not taken away from planet earth. Taken away from you. And Elisha said, I pray thee, let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. He said, thou hast asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if thou see me when I am taken from thee, it shall also it shall be so unto thee. But if not, it shall not be so. And it came to pass as they still went on and talked that behold, there appeared a chariot of fire and horses of fire and parted them both asunder. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elijah saw it and he cried, my father, my father. We want to make mention that he went up by a whirlwind, not a chariot. The chariot parted them asunder, horses of fire. That's got to be pretty trippy to see. But the whirlwind is what caught Elijah up, which is what he was held in reputation for doing, so much that Obadiah, who is in the steward of the king, Elijah's enemy, knows the stories of how this prophet disappears and lands somewhere else. That's his reputation. It's important. We're going to go somewhere with that. And Elijah saw it, and he cried, My father, my father, the chariot of Israel, and the horsemen thereof. And he saw him no more, and he took hold of his clothes, his own clothes, and rent them in two pieces. And he took up also the man of Elijah that, went, that fell from him, and he went back and stood by the bank of Jordan. And he took the mantle of Elijah that fell from him, smote the waters, and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he, had, uh, he also had smitten the waters, they parted hither and thither, and Elijah went on over. Now, we know that Elijah goes on to do twice as many miracles because he's also, we might say, twice as obedient. He does the hard things. He does the things nobody else wants to do, which is an important thing if you're going to fulfill the call of God on your life. If you're not willing to fulfill the call of God on your life, don't worry about obeying him. Verse 15, when the sons of the prophets which were to view, or they could see from at Jericho, saw him, they said, the spirit of Elijah doth rest on Elisha. 
And they came down to meet him and bowed themselves to the ground before him. And they, that's the sons of the prophets, they said unto Elisha, Behold now, there be with thy servants fifty strong men. Let them go, we pray thee, and look for your master. Why? Because this is what Elijah does. He disappears and reappears. That's what Obadiah knew him for. Elijah never denied the testimony. This is what they know him to do. He's done it again. Now, I know what you're thinking because our, our doctrine is he's raptured here. The only problem is the word heaven there is also sky. The birds inhabited this same word for heaven, the firmaments. He's held in reputation for disappearing and reappearing and disappearing and reappearing and disappearing and reappearing. So that's what these guys know. They say, hey, we got 50 strong guys. Let's go look for him. Lest perhaps, perhaps the Lord, the spirit of the Lord has taken him and cast him upon some mountain. Well, he just came from one. He was backslidden or into some valley. <laughs> and he said, you shall not sin. And when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, sin. The, uh, they sent, therefore, 50 men. They sought uh, and they sought three days and found him not. When they came again to, Jer to him, for he tarried at Jericho, he said unto them, Did I not say unto you, Go, uh, go not? So it would appear Elijah is in heaven because they can't find him. But this is not the case. He's still alive. Go to Second Chronicles chapter 21. My notes for tonight were about humility. I was going to teach on that. I had really good ones. I had, he forgets not the cry of the humble. That was going to be good. He shall save the humble. You've heard the desire of the humble. These were really good, encouraging messages. Pride ends in humiliation while humility brings honor. I had, I had a list of like the eight things pride bring, or humility brings you from God. So I just want you to know I'm kind of winging it tonight because my notes weren't for this. Second Chronicles 12. Did I say that? Yeah, I said 21. I'm sorry. Second Chronicles 21. This is the day of Jehoshaphat. Now let's do Bible genealogy real quick. Jehoshaphat becomes king. Ahab's still alive. When Ahab wants to go up to war, he gets Jehoshaphat to go with him. Jehoshaphat says, hey, Shouldn't we seek the word of the Lord before we go to battle? And Ahab says, sure. I happen to have 400 prophets. Where'd he get those 400 prophets? Those were the ones Elijah never killed. Same number that Jezebel had that were left over. It kind of goes to show you what you don't deal with today lives to ruin your life. Or like we taught in Sunday school, it becomes an inheritance for your kids. So now Elisha is having to deal with these 400 prophets. Jehoshaphat is having to look at them. And so they all prophesy, go up, go up. Of course, the Lord uses them to destroy Ahab. He puts a lying spirit in the mouth of those prophets. And Jehoshaphat says, is there not like a real prophet, Micaiah? And they go and get him and he prophesies, yep, you're going to die. <laughs> so we're... We're past, we're into Jehoshaphat. After Jehoshaphat, you have Jehoram. Uh, and after Ahab, you have Jehoram. So let's begin in verse 8. So we're two kings now removed. In his days, the Edomites revolted 
from under the dominion of Judah and made themselves a king. Then Jehoram went forth with his princes and all his chariots with him. And he rose up by night and smote the Edomites, which compassed him in and the captains of the chariots. So the Edomites revolted from under the hand of Judah unto this day. The same time also did Libna revolt from under his hand because he had forsaken the Lord God of his fathers. Moreover, he made high places in the mountains of Judah and caused the inhabitants of Jerusalem to commit fornication and compelled Judah thereto. And there came a writing to him from, this is two kings past the days of Ahab. And Elijah is still alive. He didn't go in a rapture. But he's not active daily in his old ministry because the Lord is done. He told him as much on Mount Horeb when he would not obey the simple question, what are you doing here? Go out, stand on top of this mountain. So many opportunities for mercy. Jehoshaphat is king after Elijah's departure. We're two kings on the Israel side, and Elijah is still alive, and he writes a letter saying, Thus says the Lord God of David, your father, because thou hast not walked in the ways of Jehoshaphat, thy father, nor in the ways of Asa, king of Judah, but hast walked in the way of the kings of Israel, and hast made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to go a-whoring like the whoredoms of the house of Ahab, and also hast slain thy brethren by thy, fa uh, thy father's house, which were better than thyself. I like it. God says, Your brothers were better than you. <laughs> Behold, with the great plague will the Lord smite thy people and thy children and thy wives and all thy goods. And thou shalt have great sickness by disease of thy bowels until thy bowels fall out by reason of the sickness day by day. What a curse. You will be sick till your guts fall out. Can you imagine dying with your intestines hanging out of your rectum? Now it's pretty horrific. But my point is Elijah was still alive disqualified, not in service, having to watch his protege take over, steer the kingdoms. He's somewhere off in retirement because he couldn't obey the still small voice he claimed to know so well. But maybe the bigger takeaway is you and I have to be careful we don't rehearse and practice the voice of self-justification. You know, uh, comedians will rehearse accents if that's part of their shtick. Ventriloquists practice and rehearse doing things without their mouth moving. You and I know if we're not careful, if we're going to get in trouble with the boss, we start rehearsing our case. If you've ever been to court, the lawyer will train you on what to say. Any of these Senate committees you ever see, all of that is show. Everything is planned. Every person being interrogated by the House Committee or the Senate Committee, they've already been coached. Everything is pre-planned. They're prepared for every question. There is no accidental slip. Even when Kentaji Brown Jackson said, I don't know what a woman is. That was no slip. That's liberal talking points. The world works this way. If you and I aren't careful, we will practice and rehearse our excuse it will become our faith. And when God asks us for truth, it will be our truth. 
and we won't realize how self-deluded or self-deceived we are. God was very merciful with this prophet. So many questions, so many opportunities. The angel woke him up twice in the desert to give him two meals. That's mercy. Asking a question, what are you doing here? Get back, son. Get back in the game. Speaking to him. He wraps his face in shame. Speaking to him again. So many opportunities to obey the last thing God dealt with him to do. And all he could do is rehearse the excuse that had become his truth. Elijah didn't go home. He had a worse judgment. He got to watch ministry and kingdom carry on without him. And we, he has a letter. He has a word. So somewhere off in retirement, two kings later, he's able to send a word, and God uses him one last time as is recorded in the Bible. We're Pentecostals. God holds us to a much higher standard if we claim we hear from God, we better prove it. Me and Mr. Luke, we've had many discussions over the years. We sit in my office and we'll both just say, we wish we were Methodists. We wish we were Methodists. Because Methodists don't hear from God. Most of them don't even know them. There are some good ones out there, some spirit-filled ones. I wish I was a Baptist. I wish I was a Baptist. Because Baptists don't hear from God. Unless they're telling their Pentecostal friend about a really cool story that happened to them three years ago. Then they do hear from God. They just don't share it with their fellow seminarians. If you and I are going to be Pentecostal, God's going to speak to us. It's going to improve our accuracy, but it's going to require a higher level of obedience from us. So don't be deluded. If the Word tells you to do it, you do it. And if the Holy Spirit comes along and tells you to do it, you better do it. And time is running out to obey God. We don't get to keep dragging our feet. He starts asking you questions. That is the red flag that you are in trouble. The questions are not asked for his benefit. They're always asked because we're wrong. We have idolatry. We have rebellion. We have sin somewhere. And he wants us to see where it's at. What started off as, Lord, give me a sign, was a still small voice. We're not led by sight. We're not led by feelings. It, it hurts so much. It hurts. It's going to hurt a lot worse. The hurt is not even done yet. Pay me now, pay me later, but obeying God costs. I'd rather pay in the pain of persecution than pay in the pain of rebellion and disobedience. I at least know if I obey God, he has to back me up. But I also know if I disobey him through my delusion of self-righteousness, he has every opportunity to walk away from me and never even let me know he's gone. But you'll know because everything falls apart. Your health, your money, your peace, your marriage, your career, everything just starts deflating, almost like those wind socks, those inflatable things. I think we have a word from the Lord tonight, and I have no idea how it's falling upon all of you, maybe one or two of you. But maybe let's take a minute. We're, we're done a little early. Let's bow our heads here and pray and consecrate ourselves to the Lord with whatever that last thing is he told us to do. Maybe it was turn off a TV show. Maybe it's Walk away from that cousin. Maybe it's you don't need to take that job, but you're still flirting with the idea of doing it. Maybe it's you don't need to take that mission trip or you name it. Pray this with me. Father, forgive me. Forgive my disobedience. Forgive my feet dragging. 
Forgive my excuses and my self-justification. I repent. Thank you for clear direction. Thank you for a clear mandate. Thank you for helping me to obey you. I trust you. I trust you to make the right decision. I thank you for wisdom that glorifies God. I acknowledge your wisdom isn't concerned with my comfort. Your wisdom is concerned with my life honoring you. I will not serve comfort. I will serve God. Forgive me, Lord. Wash me. Grace me. And I will obey you. In Jesus' name. Amen.